The Chinese government and corporate actors are weaponizing AI and demanding ideological compliance in the global market. What dynamics are at play in China's efforts to establish domestic and global market dominance for Chinese companies? Join The Verge's former Silicon Valley editor Casey Newton, Hong Kong-based technology and business reporter Mary Hui, BuzzFeed News international correspondent and former China bureau chief Mega Rajagopalan, and director of Stanford Internet Observatory, and Facebook's former chief secretary officer Alex Stamos as they explore the ethics of doing business with China and Chinese companies. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. This conversation was part of a four-part series presented in partnership with the Human Rights Foundation, Stanford University's Global Digital Policy Incubator, the Hoover Institution, and the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. It's my pleasure to introduce today's programming on behalf of the Human Rights Foundation, the Hoover Institution, and Stanford's GDPI and Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. First, we will be hosting a panel on the ethics of doing business with China and Chinese companies, moderated by Casey Newton, who until recently was the Verge's Silicon Valley editor. On October 5th, he's launching Platformer, a publication focusing on big tech and democracy, and his recent reporting on TikTok and other Chinese companies and their influence and interactions abroad makes him the ideal person to guide us through today's content. His panelists will be Quartz journalist Mary Hui, whose Asia-based reporting focuses on technology, personal data, and China's influence on business and society in Hong Kong and beyond. BuzzFeed correspondent Mega Rajagopalan, whose reporting was some of the first to help bring the horrors in Xinjiang to light, and has more recently been focusing on facial recognition and social engineering wielded by authoritarian governments around the world. And Alex Stamos, the former CTO of Facebook, who is now working at the Stanford Internet Observatory on the intersection of tech and civil liberties. And with that, I'll hand it to you, Casey. Let's get started. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jenny. And let's go ahead and bring in our panelists. Uh, I believe we have Alex and Mary, at least. Can I see them? Uh, many viewers uh, here, I imagine, may be familiar with the basic relationship between China and the United States when it comes to tech. But just to set some context here, uh, Mary, you're based in Hong Kong. You, you cover these issues really closely. What, what demands are placed on non-Chinese technology companies uh, that seek to participate in the uh, Chinese market? Yeah, uh, thanks, Katie. That's a great question to start off with. Um, and it's an honor to uh, join everyone on the panel today. I guess, yeah, Hong Kong really does make for an interesting case study here as we talk about the rise of digital authoritarianism and the complexities of non-Chinese companies seeking to operate in, in Hong Kong and, and, and the Chinese market at large. And I think especially in Hong Kong right now, 
where you know nowhere else in recent history have we seen what was at least a partially free city um, before um, come and, and kind of completely transform into something that's fully under um, authoritarian rule in such a short period of time. And, and so in the context of our discussion today, I think Hong Kong's kind of current situation really helps us to crystallize a lot of these issues and, and questions about the practicalities and um, the ethics of doing business uh, with China. So I guess a couple of things um, come up immediately. Of course, um, tech companies previously looked at Hong Kong as a place where you could trust that an independent judicial system, the existing institutions could provide uh, tech companies with things that are so crucial to them, like data protection, property rights, civil liberties, um, uh, civil liberties like the freedom of speech, freedom of expression and the like. Um, and, and all that has gone out the window um, overnight, essentially, from, uh, from when the national security law came into force um, uh, late in the evening of June 30th of this year. Um, and, and so, you know, we have, for example, over the course of the past year's protests and continuing into the ramifications of that right now, um, for example, um, apps um, on the Apple App Store um, running into trouble, uh, whether that's direct censorship or not, uh, what kind of pressure um, uh, was the Apple App Store put under from uh, the Chinese government? Was it just state media, Chinese state media really ratcheting up the pressure? Were there other things um, um, at play? I think we can kind of uh, get into that de those details was a, a bit more later on in the discussion, but you know, just to lay the groundwork there, uh, those are some of the complexities now in Hong Kong. Yeah, and, and maybe just to underscore that point, uh, for the most part, the, the big American companies either are, are not in China, mostly not by their choice, right? Uh, Facebook cannot operate there. Google does not operate there. Uh, the, China has uh, sort of intentionally kept those big players mostly out of their country. Right. And um, yeah, Hong Kong has long been this, uh, I guess, convenient place to, to, to establish the operations for, for Right. Well, uh, Mega, welcome. Um, what, uh, Mega, what are your thoughts on why is this? Why has China taken this really aggressive stance against uh, sort of Western um, companies bringing their, their products to the market there? Um, I think there are different answers, answers to that. Um, I think two of the more important ones are about boosting up their own national champions. Um, if you look at the kind of uh, actions taken against foreign companies is sort of the history of that. Um, it started in areas where um, there was already a pretty strong national player, like Baidu, for instance, um, was definitely boosted by um, Google being blocked in China. Um, and um, I think in addition to that, there is an issue of, of government control and government surveillance. So for instance, in China, um, you know, we all know that the, the kind of like big and only almost only social platform is WeChat and all of the other kind of offshoots of WeChat that are um, that are controlled by Tencent. And, um, you know, the kind of ubiquity of WeChat means that it permeates like every part of your life. Like you, you need WeChat to to even pay a merchant in a lot of places um, in, in cities in China. Um, it's where you find a job, where you might hail a cab, um, you know, definitely where you communicate with your friends, but also your colleagues, right? So it's not possible to do without it. So in that situation, because WeChat's data and its servers are all based in China, it makes it really easy for the government to, um, you know, to get whatever information that it wants. 
um, about individual users, um, even if it's in private messages. Um, and that I would just add that that goes for kind of different aspects of the government. Like we always think about security services and um, intelligence and stuff like that. But in reality, lots of different government bodies in China with different kinds of goals and motivations might have the willingness to demand user data uh, from a company like WeChat. And that just wouldn't be possible if China were like most other countries in which Western social media platforms are dominant. Right. right. That's very interesting. Um, you know, at the same time, Alex, we see China aggressively exporting its own technology around the world. What are what are some of the big markets that it's playing in and why is that so important to them, maybe beyond just, you know, wanting to have successful local companies? Yeah, so we continue to see is the PRC move their way up the value chain, right? So the, the start of this was kind of the, the bottom of the stack of the physical manufacturing of, it used to be low complexity components for physical goods, right? Now, you know, this phone is assembled in the PRC. Something like 2 million Chinese citizens work on the various uh, different supply lines, supply chains that, that provide the components to Apple. Um, those two million people are effectively represent a capability that is not cannot be replicated in almost any other country, right? So the, the PRC has been very effective at inserting themselves into the manufacturing of really complex consumer goods in a way that's very difficult for us to undo. Now, there's still a couple on the hardware side of components. You still don't have like the highest end semiconductor engineering isn't happening in the PRC yet, but that is an area of intense focus um, and also an area of intense use of their uh, in network intrusion capabilities uh, to to take information from uh, South Korean companies. So Samsung's a, a big target of Chinese intelligence um, and especially Taiwanese companies, right? Uh, TSMC, the Taiwanese uh, Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation is perhaps one of the most important companies on the planet in that they are the actual manufacturer of a huge amount of really critical hardware that ships around the world. Um, and so they, they've worked their way up for that. On the software side, what we have finally seen is we have seen the ability for Chinese companies to break into Western markets in the consumer space in a way they've never had before. So you know, WeChat's big globally, but WeChat's traditionally been big globally because of the Chinese diaspora, right? If you live, if you're a Chinese American, if you're a Chinese immigrant, you live in North America, you live in, uh, in Europe, and you wanna talk to your family, WeChat has effectively been the only option. Uh, but a TikTok is an interesting representation of what I think will be the future, which is that now you have uh, this, these kind of hybrid U.S.-Chinese companies, often staffed with, uh, with folks who, with uh, Chinese employees who've been educated in the U.S., who have worked at American companies, uh, and then are able to go form within the uh, business environment where they're able to do things much cheaper within China, that are now able to directly compete against the American consumer giants, the, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks, and like. Um, and so that is, that is effectively the top of the value chain. Right. If you look at the entire economic value chain here um, and other than kind of the highest end semiconductors, the Chinese are now competitive on the entire stack, uh, which I think is really interesting. Um, and then also should be a little frightening for us as Americans, because if we look at what they were able to do for the last 20 years in all of the value chain of hardware, that China made themselves the, the indispensable nation uh, in a way that I think the United States and other countries are not doing because we don't have that kind of industrial policy. Right. And Mary, to what extent is that um, part of a, a national security strategy or, or, or what else do you see sort of being in that move that goes beyond, uh, you know, just wanting to sort of grow the GDP? I think 
part of it is also kind of this this desire to control a lot of the narrative and and be able to push out this this, uh, this storyline and that is more in line with what the CCP would like the world to see or would would like to um, have sent out via its own platforms within its own borders to the rest of the world uh, and have more control over over those decisions um, and and perhaps um, there, there are no kind of um, hard cut laws or regulations that actually can be designed uh, specifically to get to get those decisions made but if you um, if the government can kind of put in place the necessary pressure <coughs> point and levers to, to, to get those decisions pushed through then I think um, we, we will kind of see more and more of that um, playing out in, in various um, in scenarios uh, where tech companies um, do have a presence in, in Hong Kong and China. Yeah. Megan, does that ring true to, to you? How much of this is about sort of um, uh, really projecting influence and a sort of alternate vision of, uh, you know, what, what tech should look like that is, you know, maybe in, in pretty stark contrast to a, a more Western view? Um, I think there is truth to that. Um, China obviously has its own views on internet governance and what internet governance should mean, um, you know, both domestically and also, um, you know, in, the, in multinational domains. Um, so part of that is this notion of internet sovereignty, right? Like the idea that a, country, a particular country should have the right to, um, to control sort of what, what passes on its internet. And, um, you know, China was arguably the first kind of uh, big player to um, to champion this notion of cyber sovereignty before it was even called that and to practice it. And, um, you know, I think back in the time when we thought that the Internet necessarily led to greater freedom of, of speech and so forth, like um, nobody would have expected it. But in fact, that kind of model um, has been adopted by a lot of other countries. Um, and I think that that uh, part of that was probably intentional. I think that um, if China is able to set a norm, that um, the norm is for a government to decide what is free on the internet and what is censored in, in the various ways that governments do that, then um, China benefits from that model because then people in China are not gonna think, oh, I'm actually missing out on something because um, this is such a kind of heavily censored internet. Right, right. Well, uh, recently we've seen a lot of concerns expressed on the subject of TikTok. Um, Alex, you famously did a Venn diagram about your feelings that I think you then sort of upgraded into like more of an Olympic rings configuration with many intersecting uh, opinions and emotions. Uh, it's a Venn peacock little, now, yes. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what, what was in those rings and, and how you do think about TikTok in America? Right. So I there are legitimate issues here that we have to deal with uh, kind of and so that's my first thing is there are there is a real risk to western democracies of being on um, you know the, on the overall industrial policy certainly but specifically from consumer applications that have a relationship with the prc state and the chinese communist party that is alien to the way that the legal based systems that we use for data access in the uh, in the west um, so there is a legitimate issue also, TikTok is not my highest concern there, right? And, and it's pretty clear that TikTok, just be, because of its being hot and then perhaps the president being pissed at something that happened at one of his rallies, all of a sudden jumped to the top of the list for the, the White House, not based upon any kind of realistic threat assessment. Um, I, I think that 
the way for us, you know, uh, Megan is totally right about the internet governance issue. One of the basic, basic issues we're gonna, we have been fighting about for 20 years and that we will fight about for the next 10 is who gets to make the rules about the internet, right? Uh, is it governments or not? And if it's governments, which governments? Um, and how do you have multi-stakeholder groups and how do, you, how do you weigh human rights issues versus sovereignty issues? Incredibly complex incredibly hard, um, something that the United States should have a very well thought out position on. And instead of us going and saying, this is our position, these are the rules we are creating that we don't mind other countries enforcing against our companies, the White House just kind of went crazy that they had an outcome that they wanted, and then a backwards justification on a national security grounds that was not very well thought out. And that uh, really, in many ways, copied the Chinese model, right? The idea of the executive branch going out and just saying, we don't like this company, we're going to cut them off from the United States, is effectively the start of the Great Firewall of the United States. Um, and it is completely inconsistent with how the United States has talked about internet governance for the last decade. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of kind of shallow talk of, oh, this is great for Facebook, yada, yada. But the reality is it was bad for all American companies because this is exactly what the European Union has been trying to do and exactly what India has been trying to do. That number of economic blocks have been trying to use, you know, both realistically and, unre and, and not so realistically, security concerns as economic policy to either punish American companies or to get them to domesticate their, their dollar spend and their, their, uh, their employee base. Uh, and there is a way forward here for democracies to have reasonable concerns and reasonable rules that they enforce, um, which might end up with some money flowing to those countries. But to go first by something that was clearly effectively the United States trying to steal a Chinese company and to do so so brazenly demonstrated to the rest of the world, like it is open hunting season on American companies. And I think that was a huge mistake. And then the other thing that was in the Venn diagram is I really don't like the way we're talking about TikTok and, and, and Chinese tech overall, because it, it does become pretty racist, right? And like, we have to separate out. I try not to use the term Chinese because you know, then you have ethnically Chinese, you have Hong Kong, Taiwan. Um, you know, I tr so we got to talk about the People's Republic of China, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and we got to be really careful to not take these feelings and to apply them on Chinese Americans, Chinese immigrants, of which a huge amount of Silicon Valley is based upon immigrants uh, who have come here to make a better life. And a big chunk of that is, is Chinese immigrants. Um, and that whole reaction, I, I find very disturbing. Yeah, I think that that's a really great point. Um, it, you know, as we're sort of moving into what is maybe the end game of the TikTok situation, I, I saw some comments uh, from the uh, from the government in China that uh, suggested that this was essentially uh, a win and that this is how uh, uh, China believes that the internet should be governed with, with sort of, uh, you know, national sovereignty. Uh, Mary, Mega, sort of thoughts on whether, you know, this whole thing has maybe proved to be a, a sort of strange victory for China in that sense? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this by saying I mostly pretty much agree with what Alex said. Yeah. Um, but I think that I, I've tried to listen to arguments on the other side of the issue as well, obviously. Um, and I think that there are like a couple of the more compelling ones are that it's a lot easier to manipulate um, an out like the TikTok algorithm than something like Facebook, where um, you're you have a lot going on at Facebook or at Twitter other than like, um, you know, you'll have like people you follow um, versus on TikTok, it's um, it's sort of largely determined by, um, you know, algorithm, right? Rather than conscious choices made by the user. Um, the second thing is that there will never like, I, I mean, I'm very sympathetic to this argument that the US um, should have 
like a certain set of norms that tech companies should just abide by, right? And that um, this should be, there's no reason why it shouldn't be the same for all tech companies, whether it's a Chinese company or an American company. But then you come to this question of, of um, if we did have a situation like that, how would you actually enforce those rules? And I think that it is problematic in a situation where, um, you know, supposing TikTok were to uh, store all of its data in China, for instance, um, it would be more difficult than for a company that stores its data in, in California. Um, so I think it's an interesting question, but to your kind of more direct question about whether it's a win for the Chinese model, I think, yeah, I think it's absolutely legitimate to perceive it that way because this is sort of what they've been advocating. Like I never thought, I've been covering China for a long time and I never thought that I'd see the day where the US was wholesale blocking um, a platform. Um, and, you know, I don't want to equate the two because the US did not block it for the purpose of censorship, right? Or for the purpose of subpoenaing user data or, um, it, you know, it, they, they came up with sort of a national security grounds for doing it. Um, but um, the thing is, the end result is looks really, really similar. Um, and I think that um, that has really surprised me. So, you know, I this it's a fascinating question to me. And, and I wonder if you could sort of um, separate TikTok out of it and sort of separate out maybe the, the particulars of the case. But if you imagine a sort of uh, random social products, so something that will bring in, um, you know, media, text posts, images, videos, uh, there's some sort of algorithmic promotion. Um, and that app starts to take off in the United States uh, and uh, it gets a lot of usage. Um, you know, Alex, you, you're a security guy. How real do you perceive the risk of that of the Chinese government seeing that as an asset to use for information operations or, or other purposes? I mean, it's definitely an issue. So uh, WeChat is the best example here in that WeChat, there's both uh, evidence of significant surveillance, uh, certainly within the PRC, but there's been good work by Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto demonstrating that they are doing mass surveillance against people outside the PRC, um, even though they don't obviously censor. There's the, the censorship and the, the shaping of the narrative uh, issue, which uh, Meg is totally right that TikTok is actually different than Twitter or Facebook in that on those sites, you decide, I want to see this content. And then there's algorithmic ranking where TikTok's all about serving you up content from scratch, right? Uh, which has a very different issue. Uh, so there, there is a legitimate issue here, but I think also there are mechanisms by which we could allow these companies to operate in a way that we have a reasonable set of controls, right? Um, and and they're, they're, uh, the model here, and you know, some of the model of what the White House has tried is not crazy in that the United States does this all the time for defense contractors, right? So like BAE systems in the UK or an Israeli company that sells to the US uh, military, they have to create a federal division and there's a bunch of rules around that and such. Um, and so you can have people working on these, on these systems that are sold to the US government, um, but there's certain security controls in place. That took years to set up, right? And so if we had reasonable laws around this is what data that we're okay with, with having access to others, um, and this is the data we're not, then companies could realistically spend six months to a year of setting up the organization in that way. Uh, what it looks like here is that the White House massively overextended, and now they basically have to take a deal because one, they're losing in court. It's not clear whether IEPA gives the president this power. In fact, IEPA specifically says you can't use CFIUS uh, to uh, affect speech. So that there's gonna be months and months, if not years of litigation here. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so they're, they're falling back to maybe a deal in which Oracle is hosting stuff. But the, the real question is not 
where is the, the data physically? In fact, like TikTok's data seemed to traditionally was physically in Singapore and the United States. It's who's operating it, right? And that's in all of these situations. When I was chief security officer, it was it, I, I was not really worried about somebody walking into a Facebook data center and stealing a hard drive, right? Like, I mean, sure, we did security around that. We did red teams around that, but it wasn't a super realistic threat, right? Uh, what's much more realistic is that of the thousands of people that have to have some access to user data, that one of them is compromised. And uh, you know, you're always worried about people being compromised technically, but if people are physically in the PRC, then they, they don't have a lot of choice, right? And it, it's they're not evil, they're not trying to do the wrong thing, but they are in a very difficult situation. And there is a, a list of situations in which it is clear that that stuff has happened in the past. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, figuring out who has access to what data at what level um, in reasonable ways to allow software to be built in China but then the actual operational aspects to be domesticated in the US, I think is a reasonable direction for us to go. But you can't do that in 30 days with an executive order, right? Like that effectively is we need a data protection framework in the United States that covers all kinds of privacy aspects and this would be part of it. Yeah, I think it is, it's a really interesting question uh, of what, you know, if we had a sort of a sane administration that was uh, maybe appropriately concerned as opposed to, you know, doing whatever the Trump administration has done, what kinds of regulations uh, could they craft? And, you know, maybe someday we'll find out and, and I'll try to ask a question about that. Well, end. and I think it's just Congress, right? The truth is, is that the in a democracy like ours, this is something that Congress should have hearings and we should have democratic debate about what the standard should be. Yes. Um, well, let me shift gears a bit. Uh, Mega, you've done tons of really important work highlighting the human rights abuses in China's detention camps for Muslims. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to say about that. But, you know, one of the things I wondered if you could speak about is um, the threat that tech poses to China's ability to commit these sorts of abuses, whether by social media helping to expose them or or other things. And so, you know, maybe could you talk a bit about the the extent to which tech, you know, what, what was helpful in, in the reporting of your story and maybe about how China thinks about that question? Yeah, it's a, it's such an interesting question because I think it, there's there's a way to illustrate both sides. On the one hand, you have China's shutting out of social media and other kind of like technologies that had bring, brought to light other crises are uh, being enormously effective in this case. But on the other hand, you have stuff like um, Google Earth, which is what we use, um, being kind of not vulnerable to Chinese censorship. Um, and I'll talk about both sides. So like to me, like um, the kind of prototypical example of that is the Syria conflict, where you had a population that um, had pretty high cell phone use relevant to other conflicts around the world. Um, had access to Western social media platforms, were able to share images and um, and words like on on Twitter, on Facebook, and um, it made, played a huge huge part in not only bringing attention to that conflict um, by the public, but also in gathering evidence that could be used in future war crimes tribunal and so forth. So like that's why you had so much great open source reporting about it through Bellingcat and other uh, Syrian Archive and other organizations. Um, and I think that, um, you know, there are people in the open source intelligence community that um, when they think about documenting the conflicts of the future, that's sort of what they think about. And I think that's one kind of possible vision of the world. But when you look at the Xinjiang case, it's like it's it's almost it's like a desert because the, this is a situation where you can get detained just for having WhatsApp on your phone. Right. Like, let alone something like Twitter or Facebook that is really not widely used in China at all. 
Um, so it, it's a it's a huge, huge disincentive. You have people, uh, sorry, you have police uh, spot checking people's cell phones for, for banned software, or sorry, banned, banned apps. And, and um, in, in uh, airports, people will talk about going through exit immigration. They, they'll clear everything off of their phone and other electronic devices because they know it's going to be checked, right? So in an environment like this, this kind of like user generated, um, you know, content, like in terms of like videos and, and um, photos and stuff like that is just really, really not possible. There are cases where, of course, where um, footage has been um, taken out. Uh, for instance, the, the drone video that went viral, um, I think late last year, um, which was of a prisoner transfer in Xinjiang. So there are kind of like assorted cases like that. Um, but then on the other hand, I think there are still, um, you know, technologies that we can use to sort of document the situation there. Um, so in the story that we published a few weeks ago, we used, um, we essentially cross-referenced um, censored images on, um, on Baidu maps, um, images we, we think are censored. Um, with the kind of same locations on Google Earth and other independent satellite imagery providers like Sentinel, Planet Labs, um, I think a couple others. And um, by doing that, like we, we, we basically saw that the censored image is sort of a clue to where um, the locations of internment camps might be. Um, so we ended up collecting like a ton of these censored images. A lot of them were not camps or anything like that, but a lot of them were. And uh, when we, Kind of looked up those same places on um, on Google Earth and um, these other services that we we saw like what they really were, and it's funny because that's like we wouldn't have been able to do it without the censorship, right? Like that's sort of what's funny about it because if we had had to comb through like every little satellite tile in the region, we never would have done it because it would have taken so long. But at the same time, if we didn't have like the independent images, especially the ones that were you know are free like Google Earth that anyone can access we wouldn't have been able to do it either. So I, th I guess what I'm saying is I think there's still avenues where technology like can can help us, you know, better understand the situation there, but it has a lot more limits, I think, than other parts of the world. That That is fascinating. Um, I mean, this is like a bit off the beaten path, but I'm, I'm just so curious because this subject is, is amazing uh, and you've done so much great work on it. Um, you know, as your reporting has come out on this subject and if others have taken a look at it, has it actually, um, has uh, has China begun to behave differently with regard to the construction of these camps? Has it sort of doubled down on it? Or like, what is your sense of what external pressure might have have done in this case? Um, you know, it's interesting because like in, so at the end of 2019, the governor of Xinjiang, who's the second most, uh, second from the top official, he essentially said that everybody who's in the camps is, is leaving, right? It has left, has left already. So remember the, the government says that these camps are vocational training centers. So they said the students had graduated. So obviously this seems, you know, it seems a little nuts, but, um, you know, you could look at this and say, maybe there's a kernel of truth here. Maybe people are moving out of these camps and into other facilities, right? So like some people thought, oh, they're being moved into forced labor. Other people thought, oh, a lot of people are being processed into the prison system. So when we were doing this project, I sort of expected to find something along those lines. But what we actually found was the opposite. We found that um, essentially the government in the first couple of years of its campaign had been so sort of desperate to detain lots of, uh, of Uyghurs and Kazakhs at um, you know once, just tens of thousands of people, that they hadn't built enough facilities to actually hold all those people. 
Um, and this also became clear as like we did the interviewing. And then what ended up happening was like around 2018, they started to build these like massive kind of purpose-built prisons and camps um, kind of all across the region. So I think that was sort of the primary change that we found. Like the, the headline on the article was built to last. And I think that kind of sums it up because I don't think you really build high security facilities like this unless you intend to use them and probably use them for a significant period of time. So I think that, um, you know, while all these other things are still present, like, um, you know, forced labor and um, kind of other aspects of mass surveillance, other aspects of the repression that happens in the region, uh, I think like it, detention and incarceration definitely continues to play like, you know, a significant part. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, so Mary, as, uh, as American companies consider doing business in, in China, uh, how should they think about the compromises that will be required? And, and I'd also be curious to know how they should be thinking about Hong Kong right now, given, uh, given all of the, the changes there that you actually uh, sort of wrote about uh, nicely in the story today. Yeah, I, well, I guess I don't know very much about kind of policies um, that yeah. companies uh, are crafting. So I, I, I guess I don't have a ton uh, to say about you know, exactly how uh, I think companies or we think companies should be crafting their policies as they look to operate in Hong Kong or China. Um, but as to kind of the, the types of complexities that they can expect to, to kind of face, for example, um, you know, even just earlier this summer, um, the, the opposition here in Hong Kong uh, organized this uh, uh, primary election, uh, and because it was an unofficial primary, um, you had these uh, developers come up with their own um, online voting app um, that they wanted to get on um, uh, the Apple App Store. And initially, you know, there was a bit of back and forth, um, but it was never really approved. And um, the developers were wondering, well, why is it taking so long? Um, and um, and even leading up to the elections, um, the, the unofficial primaries, um, both the Hong Kong and, and Chinese governments had been kind of very um, insistent that these were illegal elections um, because they were um, unofficial, they were outside of the election cycle. And this, I guess kind of that amount of political pressure um, from, from state actors and, and, and um, um, uh, official voices was perhaps enough um, to kind of slow down that um, approval process. And um, even after um, the elections had taken place, so the developers were able to get it um, onto the Google Play Store and also just um, do a web app to get around um, um, the, the delayed approval process on the Apple App Store. Um, after um, the article um, uh, that we published on Quartz, um, you know, explaining this delay, um, while well, Apple then went back to the developer and asked them, was the election official, kind of, I guess, uh, with the intention of trying to get at whether this was an OK election or not. Um, and, and to this day, um, to my understanding, the app has not been um, approved yet. Um, the developers still would like to use it in, in the future. Um, it wasn't a one-off project, um, but it seems like you know, going forward, given the, kind of the, uh, the changes that we've seen in Hong Kong um, since July um, up till now, I don't think the possibilities of, of the app being approved uh, are looking very uh, cheerful. Um, and so I guess kind of even you know, that kind of, I guess, illustrates the, the, the different decisions that these companies have to make. And I, I suppose they're looking at um, state media very closely and in various um, uh, pronouncements from, from uh, Hong Kong and Beijing governments just to try and figure out um, whether they should slow down something, um, um, block it altogether or, or drag it out and, and, and 
kind of kick the can down the road so that they don't have to be the one to, to take the take the blame for making quote unquote wrong decision um, in the eyes of the government. Right. You know, uh, about a year ago, I was talking with uh, a, a, a friend who runs a big tech company, and he pointed out that you didn't need a passport to travel until like the 1920s. Like you could just sort of move around. And he said that the internet was essentially like moving into the the passport era, right? It's, uh, you know, uh, we call it the splinternet sometimes, right? But like we're sort of rapidly seeing these zones um, emerge and, you know, living at a time of rising authoritarianism, you know, both here in the United States and around the world, it, it can be hard to think about what is, if anything, could reverse that kind of ratcheting. Um, like Alex, when you look at the, like the next five years, 10 years, like, do you see anything that breaks this kind of, um, you know, cyber sovereignty, uh, mania that is sweeping the globe, or is this just kind of our new reality? Yeah, I, the problem right now is that there's no leadership from anybody who wants to stop this path, right? Um, and, and realistically, it, the United States is the only country that I think uh, could do this uh, in that, uh, but, you know, we, we've, we've changed our position on this and that we're pushing for Splinternet now ourselves. Um, and I think it's incredibly sad. And it's incredibly sad, uh, not just for, you know, economic reasons, especially that's probably the least important, but because there's a huge number of countries that are in the middle right now, right? Who are looking at the American internet of being kind of regulation free, highly economically successful, but completely chaotic. That look at a European internet that's more and more regulated and yet completely suppresses economic activity of the top 20 internet companies by revenue. I think only one of them is European, that's Spotify, right? So it's like the, the Europe, Europe has not been able to regulate themselves into competitiveness. In fact, they're going the opposite direction. And then the Chinese internet, which combines social control and regulation with economic opportunity. And so if you're India, if you're Brazil, if you're Indonesia, if you're one of these countries that's either, uh, you know, that's probably a democracy, but a democracy with some authoritarian tendencies and without a lot of uh, constitutional rights for uh, that would that control uh, regulation of, of speech, and you're looking at these options right now. You're like mm, the Chinese option is not that bad, and I think that is that is you know, China's going to do what China's going to do, right? Like we need to have a plan around China, but we also have to plan for the five something billion people that don't live in the People's Republic, whom. Uh, their countries are currently on the precipice of going one direction or another. And the truth is, is the differences between the United States and Europe is the, it's the narcissism of small differences, right? It's these reasonably, you know, reasonable issues that people have on both sides that can be worked out because in the end, we don't have a completely fundamentally different view of what the rights of individuals should be online, right? And I would love to see leadership and it's not going to come from Europe because the part of the problem is in the European side is that there, there's nobody in a position to do this. This is a very distributed, you know, one of the, the biggest decisions coming out right now are coming from a court, which you can't really negotiate with a court. And they're wiping out executive dis, executive uh, treaties that are being signed and such. So it's going to have to come from the United States where we need a U.S. administration to say uh, we're willing to regulate our companies. We're going to do so in a way uh, that we're going to give some rights to our democratic neighbors, but we're going to set basic standards that are incompatible with the, the, the Chinese vision 
for internet governance. Um, and so we're going to have to give up. We're going to have to regulate. We're going to have to have privacy laws. We're going to have to have laws that restrict the capability of U.S. law enforcement to get a certain piece of the data. We're going to have to go much more aggressive than the Cloud Act on that. We're going to need ECBO reform to allow for legitimate law enforcement requests from democracies to be able to be serviced by American companies. Uh, we're going to need to do a lot of stuff to regulate in the United States, but we can do so in a way that sets a bar of Yes, we have regulation, but it's within these basic human rights standards, and this is what the the free internet is going to look like. Um, it, you know, we effectively need a NATO for the internet, and and nobody, and, and just like with NATO, the only country that's in position to do that is probably the United States. Um, and unfortunately, uh, we have no leadership in this space. So on the current path, yes, it's splinternet time. Uh, and I think that is completely a disaster, not just for our companies and for our economic competitiveness, but for the billions of people whose countries might go in a direction, might choose, oh, the Chinese model's not that bad, and can buy the hardware and software to make the Chinese model work straight from Chinese companies. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I would more or less agree with that. I think it's we're looking at a splinternet future. Um, yeah, I always think about this conversation that I had with, um, so the, the leader of Cambodia is a guy called Hun Sen. Um, he's an authoritarian leader. He's been in power for several decades. Um, and he's, he has a, also a super popular profile on Facebook. Um, and I was in Cambodia working on a story about this a couple years ago. And I happened to meet his, um, his Facebook minister. It was like his right-hand man for Facebook. This guy had like five or six cell phones with which he was operating various internet accounts. Um, and I asked him about this thing, right? About like, because the Hun Sen government is very close to China, and he had been to China many times um, and spoken to officials there about the internet. And um, I was like, you know, well, what do you think about the way the internet is in China? Like, you can't even use Facebook in China. You wouldn't have been able to do this. And he was like, you know, we have to use Facebook now because Facebook is already here and everyone's already on it and we can't get rid of it now. But honestly, if we could have taken the Chinese path, we would have. And he essentially said we should have, right? So like for a government like that, I mean, I think there are a lot more pluses to, um, you know, to to managing your own like social networks than the other way around. And like a lot of these governments, you know, some understandably and some not are frustrated by the fact that if they want to get something done, they have to email some person sitting in Dublin or Silicon Valley, um, you know, rather than how, going to somebody with whom they have any kind of clout. Um, and I think the kind of the bad side to that is, you know, Facebook, I think for all its problems is not actively trying to, you know, repress the human rights of dissidents or anything like that. Um, you know, whereas an actor in, um, you know, certain kinds of countries might certainly be trying to do that, right? So it's, it's weird because it's not like there's any kind of governance function over Facebook that any of these countries or, or non-governmental groups have, but they still have kind of avenues to publicly pressure Facebook, for instance, um, to try to hold Facebook to account, for instance, in court, um, through other ways. Um, I can imagine if there was, um, you know, like a, like a WeChat entity in countries that are even more repressive, like places like Eritrea, um, you know, Ethiopia with, with very strong information controls, um, things could actually look a lot worse from a freedom of expression perspective um, so yeah, I think there's going to be some kind of negative consequences to towards this um, this internet future. Yeah, um, you know, Mary, it seems to me like you have a really interesting situation because you're living in a place where social media was relatively accessible, and now maybe that 
is becoming less the case. How has the uh, how have attitudes toward social media changed uh, among people living in Hong Kong during this really turbulent past year or so? Yeah, so I mean, all the sites that were previously accessible, Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, all of that is still accessible for now on, on Hong Kong's internet. Um, and of course, uh, after the implementation of the national security law, we had a bunch of um, tech companies uh, come out and say that they were uh, halting um, cooperation with Hong Kong authorities for any kind of data requests. Um, but that's kind of a, a stopgap measure, isn't it? Um, it? It's not a long-term solution. And, and so if, they, if these companies want to continue to operate out of Hong Kong um, and within China also, then are they, what, what's their, what, what's their uh, game plan going forward? And I think for a lot of Hong Kongers, um, um, the idea that their data can end up in the hands um, of mainland Chinese uh, uh, law enforcement agencies, um, that they can be prosecuted for what they say um, on, um, uh, on online uh, forums, um, that they can be identified and then have things that they think um, are anonymous traced back to them and then have, um, them, have themselves prosecuted under the you know, vaguely defined national security law where you have crimes like subversion and secession that, um, you know, that that can get you in jail for uh, for up to life for you know something as simple as for example waving a flag that incites uh, independence uh, Hong Kong independence uh, let's say so I think what a lot of people here now are doing um, in in the weeks um, in the past couple of months we've seen a lot of uh, Hong Kong protesters getting rid of their Twitter accounts or or completely scrubbing um, their previous histories. Um, uh, people are definitely moving to, to Signal and, uh, and other encrypted apps, um, getting rid of um, chat histories much more carefully. And then even within kind of the reporting process for myself, um, you know, um, we do have to be much more careful because we're operating in this um, completely different environment. I'm sure, Mega, you're much more um, kind of familiar with having to deal with those challenges. But you know, for myself, um, you know, I've only really reported in Hong Kong in the US and you know haven't had to deal with those challenges of figuring out how to really um, make my digital security as watertight as possible and, and so the fact that the entire press corps now in Hong Kong has to operate in this new reality means that we, there is a lot of catching up to do in order to kind of continue um, uh, doing our reporting while trying not trying our best to not put anyone at risk um, so yeah just kind of a lot of uncertainty ahead isn't yeah, that's really interesting. Um, well, I, some questions have come in. Uh, we want to make sure we get to at least a couple. Um, but so maybe while people are, are also, many of you wrote questions that were like a paragraph long. I would love to see questions that are like a sentence. Um, but maybe while people are typing, um, Alex, if uh, Trump is somehow dislodged from the presidency, does any of this look very different under a Biden administration based on your conversations you're having? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it you know, uh, this our entire campaign is just about Trump and his personal issues, and it's it like we, we've had no intelligent public discussion of our positioning vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. I think um, clearly things have changed. You know, th there have been some moves that have been made by the Trump administration that have been positive in kind of forcing the hand of some Chinese companies and like. Um, and there is, I think, a much more aggressive feeling towards China and the United States, and that is going to affect the Biden administration. Um, 
you know, probably I think what we return to, and you've heard Joe Biden talk about this, is kind of the alliance of democracies model of let's line up countries that don't agree with China. You know, he is a he is a multilateralist at his core, right? And and so perhaps a return to TPP um, of let's come up with economic. Um, an economic alliance that can stand in the Pacific against China. Uh, what I, I would think would happen this time, though, if, if TPP was resurrected, is now we would directly address a lot of these internet issues that were not addressed in TPP, right? Um, and so you, you totally could see that being the direction they go. Um, and then I expect on like the, you know, if you look on the TikTok issue, there's a lot of Democrats who are being very hawkish. They're also just trying to be cautious of like, let's do this right. Um, and so you, I think you could totally see a coalition of like Richard Blumenthal, Mark Warner, of like thoughtful Democratic senators who are China hawks, but also understand that the process is important, um, being the core of this. And then the Biden administration saying, that's a reasonable direction. We're going to go along with it. We're going to follow Congress's lead on uh, a regulatory strategy to deal with Chinese companies. Right, right. Um, all right. Well, one of the uh, the most upvoted questions that we have here. Sounds like this, and uh, and I haven't decided who I want to call on. And in fact, I may just say anybody who wants this one can have it. So here's the question. In sophisticated chess style, China has created many pins so that it is difficult to challenge it head on. Because of bilateral trade, a Cold War will have dire consequences for the U.S. Because China also has U.S. allies in their pockets, it is very difficult to depend on allies to challenge China's authoritarianism. What systems and areas can we innovate that do not have dependencies on China in order to prevent human rights violations created by China's digital authoritarianism? Any thoughts on that? Somebody can just say uh, AI okay. and quantum computing, and I'll pretend that that sounded really smart, and we can move on. Oh, you said AI and quantum, so here's uh, two million dollars in Series A, uh, Casey. <laughs> you can just give it to. You. I, I would just say, like, and I think this actually relates to one of the other questions: is um, we have yet to figure out how to motivate Western companies to act within a human rights standard when they operate in China, um, and. Uh, we have let this go on too long. It would be difficult to undo some of the things that have happened. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, Apple is probably is, is the most valuable company in the world. They are completely and totally exist because of the forbearance of the Chinese Communist Party. Right. And so we've, we've allowed the situation to be created where like the most valuable co company in the United States is completely dependent on the CCP. And we're going to have to very carefully start to build uh, uh, incentive structures to force Apple and other companies to start to undo the situations that they have created where they are completely and totally at the mercy and that some of this leverage is reduced, right? And that will have some, you know, that will reduce the market cap of Apple a little bit. But it'll, one of the issues we've had is like the, the optimization for revenue in China and the cheap supply lines has been great for stock prices, but it's created a massive amount of downside risk, right? And these companies have accrued all trillions of dollars of downside risk uh, that are now in the hands of the PRC. Uh, and and we have to have a very careful strategic industrial policy around that. And it needs to be human rights based. Uh, Apple is also interesting because, uh, you know, I, I would say at Facebook, the best thing that ever happened to Facebook was being blocked in China. Right. Because I do expect if Facebook entered China, a lot of things would have happened that were horrible. Apple's not blocked in China. And as a result, they have gone further than any other American company in helping the PRC with domestic suppression of of, of their people. And we need to start to create either civil or criminal liability for American companies that do that. You can't just do it overnight because, again, we've allowed this to happen, but we're going to have to start to turn up the knob where some of this stuff gets pulled back. And 
a company, instead of just chasing Chinese revenue, thinks twice uh, about what the risks are in the West. And again, something that has to be done collectively across multiple, you know, it, it doesn't help us if we stop American companies and then European companies do the same, right? Like this is a, a coalition of democracies moment where we need to have uh, reasonable regulation here. It would be amazing if the company that Can talks the literal most about human rights had to answer for that at all. Um, did, uh, did Meg, do you have something to say? Yeah, I just wanted to add like a, a small point about digital authoritarianism. Um, so I think that there, it's really important to distinguish between Chinese digital authoritarianism and Chinese style digital authoritarianism. So in a lot of like, I, I'm not sure what the asker of this question, like what framework they had in mind. But I think a lot of times when we talk about this, we're not necessarily talking about China literally exporting tools or um, you know exporting technical know-how or whatever. We're talking about a kind of broader issue of other countries emulating the kind of uh, digital tools enabled surveillance environments um, that China has put in place, right? And sometimes those two things are related and sometimes they're not. Um, you, of course, have a lot of Chinese companies like, um, you know, SenseTime, Face++, um, you know, many others that are making surveillance tools and exporting them around the world. But at the same time, you have um, other you have companies from other places in the world doing this as well. And that includes the United States. It includes a lot of, um, you know, democracies around the world. And um, I think that that kind of brings it back to this question, which is like, what, you know, what can we do to sort of um, decouple ourselves from some of uh, the facets of Chinese authoritarianism. And I think a good place to start is that there should be, um, you know, standards for for companies in the U.S. that make surveillance technology um, as to whether to sell them to, um, you know, police and military and authoritarian governments, um, you know, how to um, determine how, how they're eventually used and whether any um, human rights abuses come from those things. Um, I think when we're talking about moving away from tiny style digital authoritarianism, we have to make sure that we're not just enabling the same thing in other countries. Because in that case, like, what does it matter if we're, we're moving away from it if the end result is essentially the same, even if the kind of concept, the philosophy of the system may come from China and um, you know, other um, allied countries? Yeah, I think that's a, uh, it's a very important point worth making. Um, saw some feedback in the Q&A that people didn't like that I expressed a political opinion, which I found <laughs> hilarious in the context of this discussion. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. We're, um, we're just talking about authoritarianism and geopolitics. Like, how could you get political, Casey? God it's forbid shocking. you had a thought about what's happening in America or the world right now. Don't censor um, yourself, Casey. <laughs> Um, well, uh, you guys are brilliant and, uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you and i like all the rest of the questions are going to take like five minutes to answer. So I, I think we may be running out of time. Does anybody have a final sentence they'd like to add for, for the folks uh, at home or something that, that they want everyone to sort of think about as they leave this session and go into the next one? Then I have done my job for, I have <laughs> rendered you all speechless. The goal of any, I, I, I just wanted to. I just wanted yeah. to give a shout out to Mary and Mega for their work in this area. Uh, like I think BuzzFeed, like the satellite photo stuff, that's incredible. I, I love the adoption of these OSINT mechanisms uh, and, and thoughts uh, within uh, like hard news reporting. I think that's awesome. Um, and I think that the 
physical bravery of people like Mary is is really amazing. And I think we all have to think about the folks in Hong Kong whose lives have been completely overturned here. That this is not just like this theoretical thing that we can talk about on on these video chats. Um, like this is a very real thing for people. So anyway, bravo. Amen. I thought it's so true. I applaud you both, uh, and we look forward to more of your great work.